Before I get started, I'm just going to make sure that the uh, tape recorder here is working. Is it? Okay. Usually have a light that goes on here. I don't see it on. Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. This Lord's Day we come to Christ's prophecy concerning future events as found in Mark chapter 13 wherein Christ responds to questions put to him by his disciples. It is generally agreed upon by even the most faithful of Christ's teachers from the past that this chapter and its parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are among the most challenging portions of Scripture in the Gospel. I wish I could say that all Christian commentators from the past have agreed as to their interpretation of predicted events that are found here in Mark chapter 13, but such is not the case. However, that is not to say that just because there are differences of interpretation that there is therefore no correct interpretation of these prophetic events. Dear ones, since God is one and is perfect in knowledge and in understanding and has given the scriptures to his prophets without error, he therefore cannot reveal to us contradictory systems and yet those systems all be true. Our task is always to seek God's revealed will from a diligent study of the scriptures in utter dependence upon his Holy Spirit in order that we might both know and do his holy will. Now, I do not claim for myself infallibility as I preach through this portion of prophetic scripture. Only the scripture is inherently infallible. And only when our interpretation of Scripture is agreeable to the meaning intended by God does it partake of a derived authority and infallibility from Scripture. However, I have sought by God's grace to be faithful to the extent that I can in the exposition of God's Word. Nevertheless, I plead with you to be at all times like the Bereans, who were commended because they even compared the very words of the apostles that were given to them. They compared them to the words of Scripture, as we find in Acts 17.11. They, that is the Bereans, received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Thus, although I give to you, dear ones, the most faithful understanding of this text that I presently know, it doesn't mean that I cannot further grow in my present understanding, nor that you cannot further grow in your understanding. By God's grace, I do pray that greater light and understanding of God's word will be imparted to me, and I pray the same for you. But having wrestled in prayer and study, I give to you the fruit of my study. I must tell you at the outset that at times, through the exposition of this passage in Mark chapter 13, that it may appear to be very technical and maybe even tedious at times. I tell you in advance so that you might thoroughly apply yourselves to concentrating upon the exposition of God's word. Take notes, 
stretch yourselves to follow the exposition as closely as you are able to do. I do desire to make these sermons as practical as I possibly can, but clarity in exposition demands that I be as precise as possible. Before considering the specifics of our text this Lord's Day, we must first lay out some preliminary remarks which are necessary in building a good foundation to an accurate understanding of Mark chapter 13. With that in mind, let us take up the following two main points this Lord's Day. First of all, an overview of Mark chapter 13. And second, the sign of false Christ. Our first main point, then, is an overview of Mark 13. And as I said, this can, if you're not concentrating and following, this can become tedious. And this will take up the bulk of the sermon today, is an overview. As we consider the prophetic words of our Lord in Mark chapter 13, I would first like to give to you a brief overview of this chapter so that you might have the big picture, if you will, before getting the more detailed exposition, which we'll begin working through at the end of the sermon today and continue to work through that detailed exposition for the next several weeks. First, you'll recall from our study a couple weeks ago when we considered Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 and 39, that I noted for you what appeared to be three separate comings of the Lord inferred from those verses. Let me simply review that for you. First of all, there is Christ's non-bodily coming in 70 A.D., where he would bring judgment upon Israel through the Roman armies and yet bring deliverance to those believing Israelites who heeded his warning. In Matthew 23:38, we see a clear reference to Christ's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Matthew 23:38 where it says behold your house is left unto you desolate This is called I would submit to you a coming of Christ in Matthew 16:28 where we read these words the words of the Lord Jesus when he says verily I say unto you there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then in the parable that we find in Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 21, I'm sorry, Matthew 21, beginning with verse 40, there we find a parable concerning a certain husbandman a certain lord who rented out his vineyard to certain husbandmen, and how he came to seek payment, fruits from the vineyard, the rent which was due, and how they would not pay him what he was due, and how when he sent various servants, they persecuted, they smote them, they even slew some of them, And he said, Surely they will respect and honor my son. And he sent his son unto them. And they said, Here is the heir. Let's kill him. And then the vineyard is ours. And so they did so. Now, in verse 40. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those Husbandman. Here we see that even in this parable, 
it speaks of a coming of God. Now, what occurs in this coming? Verse 41, They say unto him, that is, the Jews to whom he was speaking, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. <clears throat> and so here we see, I would submit to you, is even in the parable, a coming of God in destruction, which points to the coming of the Lord in his destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. This, I would submit, is the first and most immediate coming of Christ that is in view here in Mark chapter 13, verse, verses 5 through 31. This is the case due to the passages just listed, the passages in Matthew 23:38, Matthew 16:28, Matthew 21:40, all leading up to this particular section. It is also due to the fact that there are certain remarks of Christ and questions from the disciples that are posed in Mark 13, 1 through 4, which all point to Christ's coming in judgment in 70 AD, where the Lord says, there's not going to be a stone left one upon another when they asked about the temple. And they asked, when will these things be? But also observe the words of the Lord that are found in Mark 13.30, which I again would submit to you, point to the fact that, that Mark 13, verses 5 through 31, first and foremost, refer to this coming of the Lord. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Now, I will have much more to say about this passage when we get to it in our exposition, but I take Christ's words to mean that all of the events just predicted will be fulfilled, including the coming of Christ that's found in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 26, before that generation to which he spoke had passed away. There's a second coming that we noted in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. Christ's non-bodily coming just before the millennium, wherein he will bring judgment to the nations who oppose him and yet bring salvation to Israel and through Israel subsequently to all the nations of the world. In Matthew 23:39, Christ predicts, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Here I would submit, we see two distinguishable comings of Christ. One coming which will occur when Israel will see the Lord bodily at his second coming, as will all nations. And one coming before that time when Israel will declare again, as they did at the triumphal entry just three days before, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This, I believe, 
is the same coming of Christ before the millennium which we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, speaking of this man of sin who sees himself in the temple of God or the church of God, he takes upon himself the prerogatives of God, the titles of God, blasphemes God. And it says in verse 8, And then shall that wicked, that is, that wicked one, this man of sin, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. When will this coming take place? When will he destroy this man of sin, this beast? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following, I would submit we find just before the millennium, this non-bodily coming of the Lord, where it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was faith, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And it goes on to describe that this was Christ, who is called the Word of God, and who goes forth to destroy all of those nations who have, have raised themselves up against him. And in the same chapter, verse 20, it says, And the beast, that is, the same person we just re- looked at in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of sin, is the same person, the beast, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. This, I submit to you, is the second and more remote coming of the Lord that is in view in Mark 13, verses 5 to 31. In other words, the coming of Christ in 70 A.D., I would submit, foreshadows another coming of Christ, more distant and remote, just before the millennium, wherein the Lord will destroy his enemies and save his ancient people of Israel. One prophecy foreshadowing another prophecy, as I would suggest happens in this passage, is not a new concept in prophetic literature as we see by comparing various places in Scripture where this occurs. And not to make this more tedious than perhaps it may seem already, but to simply give an illustration of this. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, the words of Peter citing Joel 2, 28 and following, There Peter refers to these blessings of the Holy Spirit that would be poured out upon God's people before the great and notable day of the Lord. Before the great and notable day of the Lord. And he's referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the people gathered there, the the, uh, apostles and those believers that received the Holy Spirit, in that most unusual and unique way in Acts chapter 2. And the great and notable day, I would submit, before which that blessing occurred, was before the destruction of Jerusalem, the day of the Lord that was to come upon Israel. However, when we go back to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, we, we find the, the phrase, the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
And as we consider Joel chapter 3, it makes it very clear in my judgment that we're not looking to, at that point, the period of time that happened after 70 AD, but we're looking at the period of time which we call the millennium. And so we see in Joel chapter 2 that this great and terrible day of the Lord would seem to be the coming just before the millennium. And so it's not, again, unique to Scripture that the one coming of the Lord in 70 AD would foreshadow the other coming of the Lord just before the millennium, both non-bodily comings of the Lord. Furthermore, in Mark chapter 13 and its parallel accounts in, Mark, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, there appears at times to be an obvious connection between certain prophecies of Christ that are found in Mark 13, verses 5 through 31, with other prophecies in Scripture which speak of Christ's non-bodily coming just before the millennium. For example, in Mark 13, 19, it speaks of this worst, uh, this worst um, tribulation or trial or distress, the worst one that has ever happened or shall happen. If you compare all the parallel accounts, you'll find that to be the case. And yet we find in this earthquake that occurs in Revelation 16, verses 15 through 19, that it was the worst earthquake that has ever happened or shall happen. An earthquake, again, not necessarily in a literal sense, but in a political or ecclesiastical sense, shaking the very foundation of the nation at that time and no doubt bringing great, great tribulation, great war, battle into the world, the worst of its kind. And so, in Revelation 16, verses 15 through 19, I would submit, it refers to, in verse 15, the Lord says, I come as a thief. And he brings this judgment, which is a precursor to the millennium. And yet in Mark chapter 13, we find that this tribulation, the worst of its kind, is used there, and I would suggest moves even beyond, by way of its language, beyond simply the destruction of Jerusalem to look forward to foreshadow that coming of the Lord which is yet in the future. We also find in Matthew 24, verse 28, that birds are feeding upon the slain. And likewise in Revelation 19, verses 17, 18, and 21, just before the millennium, we find reference where God invites the fowls of the earth to come to the supper to feed upon the slain due to the Lord himself having brought judgment upon the nations of the world. Again, there seems to be a connection in some way to that particular judgment that we find in Matthew 24:28 and the one in Matthew 19, in Revelation 19, verse 17, 18, and 21. One last connection, and there are many that we'll work through as we uh, go through the detailed exposition, but this, this is again by way of overview to show this connection between the judgment in 70 AD and the judgment that we find coming before the millennium. We find again, as we have noted in <clears throat> Mark 13:26, that there... There is a coming of the Lord wherein it says that the Lord will come, the Son of Man will come in, in the clouds with great power and glory. We've already noted in Matthew 16:28 how the Lord says that there are some standing here who will not die in case of death before the before the Son of Man comes 
and tying it in with Mark 9.1, which is a parallel passage to that, before the Son of Man comes. And power. It would seem again that there is a relationship between both these this coming as referring to this event both in 70 AD and even looking beyond that to the judgment that we find just before the millennium by the use of even the, the words that are used in regard to that coming. Thus, as we work through Mark 13, we will not only be considering events leading up to Christ's non-bodily coming in 70 AD, but also events leading up to Christ's non-bodily coming before the millennium. Even events which may be fulfilled in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children. There's a third coming that's referred to in Matthew 23:39, Christ's bodily coming after the millennium or the second coming of Christ, wherein he will bring final judgment to the wicked and final salvation to all his people. There we read in Matthew 23:39, the words of Christ, Ye shall not see me henceforth, Till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I would submit the first part of that verse, Ye shall not see me henceforth, refers to the bodily coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence we have our postmillennial eschatology that Christ's coming occurs after the millennium and not before. This, I would submit, is the same coming that is referred to in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, where the angel says to the disciples, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come, that's the second coming, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven, bodily coming, a bodily coming. Furthermore, with regard to this coming in Mark 13 and the parallel passages, neither the day nor the hour of this coming of the Lord is known to man and was not even known to Christ Jesus himself while upon the earth according to Mark. 13.32 But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. He's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, his coming and destruction at that time, nor is he talking about his coming just before the millennium and destroying the nations and restoring Israel unto himself but he's talking about his final second coming. No one knows of that day or that hour. There are no signs given here in Matthew or Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21 to indicate this coming of Christ. Whereas we find all kinds of signs listed in these parallel passages indicating the coming in 70 A.D., and that which it foreshadows just before the millennium. This is the coming that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23 through 26, where it speaks that the Lord will come and then the end shall come. And this is the coming that we find later on referred to in Matthew 25, verse 31, where the Lord will bring before him all of the nations and will separate them as sheep from the goats and will reward them by giving to the righteous everlasting life and to the wicked everlasting torment. 
Now that's one of the preliminary observations I would make at this point. Keep in view these three comings of the Lord. A second preliminary observation by way of overview of Mark 13 is this. As I approach Mark 13, I do not consider this chapter to be the only witness to the words of our Lord spoken at this time to his disciples from the Mount of Olives. For I view the words of Christ as found in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21 to be parallel to those words of Christ that are found here in Mark chapter 13. In other words, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 all speak of the same prophetic events which were to occur in history. That's important so that we know that when we go to one passage in, in Mark chapter 24, or Matthew 24, and then go to a similar account in Mark 13 or in Luke 21 that we're talking about and the Lord is talking about the same event that we're comparing scripture with scripture at that particular point now there may be in regard to this point there may be some observable differences in the addition of words or in the omission of words between Mark 13 Matthew 24 and Luke 21 but, dear ones, this is true when comparing many parallel accounts in the Gospels. When you compare parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or if it appears in John, you'll find that there are things that are added and things that are omitted in the various accounts. They are not verbatim the same accounts. Well, that doesn't mean they're not inspired. It simply means that you have four witnesses giving testimony at various times to the same event. For example, compare the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, with the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. The words added or omitted. Second, notice the difference as to the details between the account of the demoniac. In Matthew 8.28, with that which is found in Mark 5.2, and which is found in Luke. I don't remember the chapter in Luke, but it is found in Luke. In that particular case, Mark and Luke agree together, that saying that there was one man, whereas Matthew says there were two demoniacs. But they're talking about the same event. That doesn't mean that Mark and Luke are wrong. They simply focus their attention upon one of the demoniacs, whereas in reality there were, there were two demoniacs present. Or thirdly, observe the contrast in the words of the Lord regarding divorce in Matthew 19.9 and Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. The exception that's stated in Matthew 19.9 is omitted in both Mark and in Luke account. Again, Mark and Luke agreeing together. But Matthew adding a very important exception, which Jesus did mention on that particular occasion, but which, again, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark and Luke happened to omit. Fourthly, evaluate the difference in the words found in the Beatitudes as recorded in Matthew 5.3 and following, with those that are found in Luke 6.20 and following. Quite a bit of difference that one will find. I hope that, and there's many others that could be cited, but I hope you can see where I'm driving with regard to this whole matter of seeing these as parallel accounts, speaking of the same events, but the different writers using different words, either by way of addition or omission. The additions and omissions inspired by the Holy Spirit do not indicate that these refer to different events 
They merely indicate that God has given us different witnesses to the same events wherein some details are added in one account or omitted in the other account. As we move through Mark chapter 13, it will become obvious that sometimes Mark 13 agrees with the wording of Matthew 24. But at other times, Mark 13 agrees with the wording of Luke 21. However, as in all parallel accounts, we understand the additional wording not to indicate a different set of events, but merely additional information supplied by one gospel writer that fills out the understanding of that account. The reasons I believe that Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 to be parallel accounts are the following. Let me give to you about six reasons why. And maybe it might seem obvious, but I think it's worth stating. First of all, each of these accounts begins with essentially the same preliminary remarks concerning the temple's destruction by Christ and the questions that were asked by the disciples as to when these things should be. In other words, each of these accounts has the destruction of Jerusalem as that event which provides the background, the backdrop, for the prophetic utterances of the Lord. Secondly, each of these accounts has substantially the same signs preceding Christ's coming in judgment. Thirdly, each of these accounts speaks of a desolation to come wherein those who are in Judea are warned in advance to flee to the mountains so as to be rescued from it. Fourthly, each of these accounts predict a time of great tribulation prior to Christ's coming in judgment. Fifthly, each of these accounts states that the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and that the Son of Man shall be seen coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Sixthly, each of these accounts includes a parable of the fig tree where after Christ states that the generation of Israel which then was living as he spoke would not pass away until all the things he had just predicted up to that point should be fulfilled. This, I would suggest to you, very clearly binds, in my judgment, all three accounts to the same prophesied events prior to the destruction of Jerusalem foreshadowing again the destruction upon the nation which should come before the millennium. For Christ says that generation then living would not pass away until all of the events just prophesied have come to pass. And finally, each of these accounts then ends with warnings concerning that day, that day, of Christ's second coming, wherein the whole earth will be judged. <clears throat> Let me give to you one more preliminary observation, one more piece of information by way of an overview before we consider for just a few moments Mark 13, verses 5 through 6. 
let me give you a general outline, a general outline of Mark 13 so you may track where we're going as we move through the chapter. Number one, signs preceding Christ's coming in judgment. Signs preceding Christ's coming in judgment, Mark 13, 5 to 13. Number two, signs indicating that Christ's coming in judgment is now present. Number two, signs indicating that Christ's coming in judgment is now present. It's imminent. It's upon them. Mark 13, verses 4, 14 through 31. Mark 13, verses 14 through 31. And then thirdly, no signs of Christ's final coming in judgment. There are no signs of Christ's final coming in judgment. In Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. No signs mentioned or listed there. So, we refer to or take that to refer to another coming of the Lord, the second coming. I do hope this overview has been helpful and will be helpful to you as we now begin to look more closely at the text itself. And so our second main point, the sign of, of false Christ. Considering Mark 13, verses 5 through 6, where we read these words. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Let me simply say before proceeding with this particular passage, one more thought came to my mind that should really belong or go under the previous point. And I don't want to fail to mention it. And if I go on, I know that I'll forget it. So, The differences that we do note between the parallel accounts Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 though I did not elaborate on those differences and how they might be reconciled at, that, at this particular point in time, uh, we will do so as we move through Mark chapter 13. So I just want to make that uh, clear that I see that there are some differences, but I don't believe that there are differences that cannot be reconciled with the various accounts. All right, back to number two, the sign of false Christ. The Lord Jesus, in answer to the questions put to him by his disciples, and Mark 13, 4, now begins to give various signs which precede the coming of the Lord to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy the temple in 70 A.D. by the Romans, which foreshadows again this coming of the Lord in judgment upon the nations before the millennium. Those questions of the disciples read as follows, just to refresh your mind, in Mark 13, 4. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? The first sign Christ mentions, and the only one we will have time to consider this Lord's Day, is that of men who will declare themselves to be Christ the Messiah. The Lord warns the disciples to beware that they be not misled or deceived at this point. It is interesting to note that both Mark 13.6 and Luke 21.8 state quite literally that these men who will come in Christ's name will declare, I am that's what it says. I am, not I am Christ. 
which is a title of deity. They will say, I am. Perhaps, again, there's been an ellipsis, uh, an omission at that point uh, of simply the that which is taken for granted. They will come in my name saying, I am Christ. But also, perhaps, the writer intended that these men will claim prerogatives, titles, authority of deity, of God himself. Matthew 24, 5 records that these men will proclaim, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah. Now, there's two ways in which we might understand this and what they actually claim to be Christ, first of all. Simon Magus, Simon the sorcerer, was one such person among many who became a sign, if you will, which preceded the coming of the Lord in 70 A.D. For shortly after Christ had uttered these words, perhaps a year or two later, this Simon was declaring himself to be the great power of God and was performing wonders before the people by means of sorcery, according to Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. This Simon also occurs in literature outside of the scripture as well. For instance, Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist of the early 2nd century, writes concerning Simon that he was given divine honors by others. He was viewed as being divine or being deity. Jerome of God. The Jewish historian Josephus also records that there were those who came declaring themselves to be the Messiah in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This particular emphasis upon those who come saying that they are the Christ would perhaps be a great, far greater temptation to Israel than it would be upon other Christian, upon Christian churches. For Israel yet falsely awaits the coming, first time, first time coming of their Messiah. He has come. They rejected him. But they, in their own false convictions and opinions are waiting for him to come the first time. And so this, this particular temptation, this warning of these men who would come would be a particular temptation to Israel to look to these men since they rejected Christ, to look for one who claims to be the Christ and Messiah and who would deliver them from their oppression, from all of their enemies. However, in trying to make application to this even today, what about all those who claim that Christ has appeared unto them and given them a new message to declare to the world? Dear ones, we are hereby warned by the Lord not to be deceived by those who claim such lies. For either they have intentionally lied to gain a following for themselves and are charlatans, or they themselves have been grossly deceived by some demonic appearance claiming to be Christ, in which case they are tools of the devil. For the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of life. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Don't think for a moment that if Satan could appear 
as an angel of light or as Christ himself, declaring himself to be Christ to an individual that he wouldn't do so. If God permitted him to do so, he certainly take every advantage and occasion to do so. Lord Jesus, dear ones, is bodily in heaven, seated in all of his royal glory at the right hand of God, and will remain there until his second coming after the millennium. He's not appearing in bodily form to people today. He's seated at God's right hand. According to Psalm 110.1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God will, the Lord Jesus will, will remain at the right hand of God the Father until all of his enemies become his footstool, which according to 1 Corinthians 15 will finally occur when he returns at his second coming and death is swallowed up in victory. That's the last enemy. And then we will see the Lord Jesus. This warning of the Lord that we are to avoid and take heed to false messiahs, or false teachers, may also refer to those who merely claim, I should say merely, it's awful, it's blasphemous, but who claim the attributes, authorities, titles, or prerogatives of Christ. For historically, it is difficult to demonstrate that there were many who came declaring themselves to actually be Christ in the flesh. There were some. However, there were many anti-Christian systems present in the early church of the first century which usurped the authority, prerogatives, doctrine, worship, and government of Christ. Gnosticism was such an anti-Christian system which included a Christ in its teaching, but not the Christ of the Bible. A Christ that had no actual body of flesh because according to the Gnostics, flesh was evil. Christ could therefore not have an actual body of flesh, they taught. Such an anti-Christian system is alluded to by the Apostle John in his first epistle, most likely, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, where we read these words. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, and I would submit to you that refers to the Antichrist that we find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Antichrist, that papal Antichrist, that Antichrist shall come, that's used in the singular, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And so here we find Antichrist used in the plural. There are many even now among you. Antichrist systems, Antichrist figures representing that doctrine and worship and government that is contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, it is not only those who make the claims of the Gnostics that are anti-Christian, but we see in another anti-Christian system which Paul predicted would come prior, prior to the millennium and prior to the second coming of Christ. We find another anti-Christian system and we looked at it already in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Actually, we did not read those particular verses, but just note with me very 
briefly these verses. He's called the man of sin. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. This is speaking of, again, the, the, the second coming of Christ, which some said had already occurred. And the Apostle Paul is writing to assure them that it had not occurred, for this had not taken place yet. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, that is, an, an apostasy, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This apostasy is associated with this man of sin, this son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He sits in the temple of God. That is, he takes up residence, sets up his throne, his seat, and rules within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit a very clear reference to that papal antichrist who assumes to himself the titles, authority, attributes, and prerogatives of Christ. For the Pope claims to be the head of the church upon earth, whereas Christ alone claims that title and that position in Ephesians 5.23 and Colossians 1.18 that he is the head of the church. No other head is mentioned. There are not two heads to this body. There's only one head. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ and it is the Pope that usurps that authority and that place within the church. And so I would submit that in Mark chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, we are warned against this particular Antichrist as well. And this again indicates that this foreshadows, I would submit, foreshadows events that will occur before Christ's coming for the millennium. Well, how are we to evaluate all of those who come in Christ's name? The Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, we'll know them by their fruit. By the fruit of their character and lives, and by the fruit of their doctrine, we shall know them. We're not to evaluate whether they are truly coming in Christ's name by the miracles that they perform or profess to perform, for we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that with this Antichrist will come many lying wonders that will deceive the world. We're told the same thing of the beast. In Revelation 13, the Lord continuously warns us, do not follow signs and wonders as being that which will clearly indicate whether one is from the Lord or not. Judge them by their character and life and judge them by their doctrine, whether it's conformable to the scriptures. And so the Lord calls us here in Mark 13, 5-6, not to be gullible, but to test those who come in the name of Christ as the Apostle John told us to test every spirit, everyone claiming to come by the Spirit of God to us in 1 John 4, verses 1-3. through 3. Don't be gullible. Test the spirits. Try them. You see, it's not to be sinfully judgmental to make such evaluations. Dear ones, it is, in fact, our very life. Our life depends upon it to make such judgments. So that we are not misled by wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, deception and even eternal death await those who do not carefully apply the words of the Lord Jesus that are here spoken to their own lives. 
The Lord promises in Matthew 24, 14 that his elect, and this is a wonderful promise, that his elect cannot be so deceived as to be led to everlasting torment, damnation. We can be deceived as to our well-being, that which is good for us, but we cannot be deceived as to the very being and essence of our faith in Jesus Christ. But who among us wants to even be deceived and misled as to our well-being? And therefore the Lord gives to us these warnings. And I close, dear ones, today. That to which we must always look in faith is to Christ and His righteousness. We must ever check ourselves that we are not trusting in ourselves. That we're not trusting in our own self-righteousness. That we're not trusting in men, whether in ministers or elders, teachers, priests, or popes, as our hope of eternal salvation. Dear ones, our only hope of eternal life and our, hope, our only hope of knowledge of the truth is found in Jesus Christ and in His inspired Word. Let that be the object of our faith and of our trust today. Let us stand together in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, We who look to ourselves, we who look to our own righteousness may in fact be deceived. We who look to Thee will not be disappointed. For our rock, O Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is immovable. And like the temple which was destroyed and whose stones were moved, our chief cornerstone cannot be removed from that foundation upon which is built the temple of God, the church of God. And Lord God, we pray this day that Thou would cast us afresh and anew upon Thee to find in Thee all that we need for this life, all that we need to avoid those false teachers, those who go around parading as being the very voice of God. We pray, Father, that Thou would give to us insight and understanding that we may be able to not only preserve ourselves, but our children, our families, and that the church of Jesus Christ might be preserved and protected, and that it may walk in such a way as to follow the Good Shepherd wherever he leads. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.